Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 3. Please follow along with me now as I read. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here ends the reading of God's word. We're here this morning to ordain Pastor Nick. It's obvious to him, it's obvious to the leadership of, in our denomination, it's obvious to the broader church that God has called him to be a minister of the gospel. Now why? why? Why does God do that? Why does God call people specially to minister the gospel? It's because it's so easy to forget how important the gospel is. And you all know this. When life hits you, it's really easy to forget that we have to process all of our life through the lens of the gospel. We have to respond to life out of the resources of the gospel. It's really easy to forget that. Really easy to let something else become more central to you than what Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. I was walking with one of my kids one time on a walking bike path in the city, and we hear this little bell, this bike bell behind us, and at that point, it's a very narrow path. There are people on that side, people on this side, and this fairly large woman comes whizzing by, weaving back and forth on both sides of the path. She doesn't care about the little kids on that side, doesn't care about us, just goes racing by. And she rebukes us all as she goes by. She yells out, the bell means get out of the way. My child was not feeling the righteousness of her cause in that moment. He was actually pretty incensed. He looks at me and goes, are you kidding just astounded that somebody could be that self-absorbed to put everybody else in danger and have no idea that she was the cause of that as she insists that everybody bow to her. 
So we start talking this through. It's part of what we're called to do as parents, right? Try to help our children process their world from within this larger biblical framework. And it was important because my child in that moment was not. And as we went back and forth after a little while, he says, I really wish with people like that that I could just sit down and help her see how wrong that is to think like that. I smiled at him and I said, oh, so you're a secularist now. And he looks at me a little puzzled. I said, you believe that a little education, a little understanding is enough to change the selfishness of the human heart. That if she could just see her badness, just understand it cognitively, that would be enough to make her want goodness. It would be enough to make her want to be aware of others and to be careful then with how she treats them. Do you hear it? My son loves the Lord really, really good at thinking like a Christian. But in an unguarded moment with the adrenaline running high, the gospel does what? It moves out of the center and something else moves in. No longer his primary way of processing life, but something else is. Something that our larger world promotes as the solution when you encounter someone who's dangerously self-absorbed. What do you have to do? You have to educate them. Now, to be fair, my son could have chosen something different, something else that our modern world holds out as an option for dealing well with people who don't play well with others. He could have said, I just want to push her off the bike. That'll teach her. In other words, he could have gone with aggression over education, with power, with domination over instruction. That is another thing that our world holds out as a possible solution for dealing with people who are unruly. Or he could have said, I'm going to start a petition for new bike laws on walking paths. What's that? That's legislation. That's curbing people's bad behavior by generating new laws against it. Or he could have said, I'm going to pull out my phone and report that lady, try to get her arrested. He could have tried incarceration, remove badly behaving people from the public sphere. Or he could have said, I just wish we could get her a counselor, that we could try therapeutic intervention, figure out what went wrong in her childhood, why she isn't a happy person, and give her better coping skills. A lot of different options, right? Education, domination, legislation, incarceration, intervention. There are a lot of options in our world for how to change people. See, the problem in the modern world, like in the ancient world, is not that we can't see the problems of our society. It's not that we can't see what's wrong all around us. The problem is that all of our solutions have the same thing in common. And that is that they do not address the thing that God addresses. None of them address the thing that he says is the most fundamental problem of humanity. They don't address our most fundamental need, and they don't address it because they don't see it as a need. And if you don't see what you need, then you won't look for it. You won't look for a solution for it. Instead, what will you do? You'll look for something else. And that is just as true of us in the church as it is outside the church. And so we need God to call people, like Pastor Nick, to remind us of Christ's gospel, to remind us of his solution to our greatest need.
That's what you hear Paul doing with the Corinthians today, reminding them of the same thing that you and I need to be reminded of. And I'm going to put this in two categories today. First, we need to be reminded that we human beings are separated from the glory of God. And second, that the separation is removed so that we become glorious. Just two things for this morning. That we're separated from glory until the separation is removed so that we become glorious. Let's dive in. Chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What's Paul doing here? He's referring back to the time when God brought Israel out of Egypt, and this is essentially Paul's commentary on that time. So let me give a little extended backstory as to what's taking place there so that this has context. The ancient world of Israel's day was a mess. Genesis tells us that human relationships fell apart as soon as Adam and Eve rejected God. Tells us that breaking our vertical relationship with God immediately led to breaking every horizontal relationship. And so what do you learn there? You learn that Adam and Eve start hiding from each other. They're not living openly with each other. They start to blame shift, throw others under the bus to save themselves. Marital power struggles just become a way of life. And you learn very quickly that if you will not live rightly with God, you can't live rightly with anyone made in his image. You can't live well with anyone who reminds you of God. And that horizontal brokenness in the human race just kept escalating over time. Their one son, Cain, killed his brother Abel. A little bit later, other people wouldn't simply murder, they would boast about it. Whole societies started taking on certain collective sin traits. Babylon, a city, was arrogant. The people there were just full of themselves. Sodom and Gomorrah were known for sexual immorality and injustice that cried out to heaven. Rape and prostitution in the land of Canaan were not unusual. And then there was Egypt. Egypt was a society that was marked by fear, an insecure society. They were afraid that others would hurt them. And so they responded in very bad ways to that insecurity. They responded to the Israelites with racism, genocide, slavery, violence. It's an incredibly broken world, a world full of individual and societal issues. And God decided to intervene. God decided he was going to offer a solution. And you realize the fact that he offers anything in that world after the way humanity treated him just shows how gracious he is. But pay attention to what he offers because that tells you what he thinks the biggest problem is. And what God chose to do was to address the source of the problem, that the human race had rejected him, had broken our relationship with him. He did not take a modern approach to dealing with it, didn't try education, domination, legislation, or therapeutic intervention. Went to a much deeper source. Now that's not to belittle how bad our social problems really are. God didn't belittle the ancient world's social problems either, but he did something about them because he cared so much about those people. That said, God did not address the societal issues first because the problem that we don't see is even worse than all of the ones that we do see. And God thinks that if we don't address that problem, the one that he sees, then all of our interventions are addressing what? The results 
of a greater problem, but they're not touching the cause of that problem. They're leaving that cause untouched, which is going to what? It's going to produce even more problems in the future. A friend of mine is battling through a form of cancer right now. Her bone marrow was producing cells in her blood that didn't work right. Bone marrow was producing damaged cells, corrupted cells, which were then damaging the rest of her body. So she had a complete bone marrow transplant. For a while, a couple months, it seemed to be working. Her body started producing normal red and white blood cells, platelets, no more cancerous cells for a while. And then her cells started mutating again. So now what? Well, she'll need another bone marrow transplant, but if that's all she gets, then the same thing is going to happen again. The new marrow will get corrupted like the former marrow did, and it'll start twisting and distorting the cells again, making more broken cells again, because she has a deeper, more serious underlying problem. And so now she's in a special drug trial. The doctors, the researchers, are working to target the gene that's responsible for the mutations. They are dealing with the underlying problem so that when they redo the bone marrow transplant, it can function like it should and not get corrupted itself and produce corrupted cells again. That's what you see God doing in the ancient world. Since our human brokenness among ourselves is the result of our brokenness with him, he addressed that primary problem first. Brought Israel out of Egypt, brought them into a special relationship with himself, restored their relationship with him. It's a relationship where he told them, Exodus 19, 6, that they would be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he made a covenant with them that since they were now in a relationship with a holy God, they needed also to be holy in order to be with him. They needed to obey him, needed to be like him. And sadly, you know the story, they immediately failed. They had all the information they needed. God told them, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall trust nothing more than you trust me. And the people couldn't do it. Their hearts were hard. You learn there that sin is ne never a matter of not having enough information. It's a matter of wanting something other than the information that God's given you. Remember the story? Moses is up on the mountains talking with God. The people get restless down below. They, they wondered where Moses had gone. Why he's taking so long. Started to feel insecure. Like they're out here in the wilderness. They don't have anything to fall back on. They didn't like that. So they convinced Aaron to make new gods for them. Golden calves. Something tangible that they could rely on. Something that they felt would be more solid than trusting this God they couldn't see. And they broke the covenant. As soon as it was given. Broke it and put themselves in mortal danger. God tells Moses he's about to destroy them, that his holiness is about to get rid of their unholiness, would get rid of them. And Moses interceded for them, put his life on the line, offered his life in place of theirs. God accepted that intercession, forgave the people. But there was a consequence now that was still lingering. They now had to be separated from his glory. And so Moses, this righteous intercessor, he could see God's glory. He asks to see God's glory. But the people couldn't ask for that. They couldn't get close 
to this God that they needed. You see that lived out. Moses came back down to them after seeing the glory of God, and his face was shining. Glory of God just reflecting off of him. And when Aaron and the Israelites see him coming, Exodus 34, 30, they're afraid to come near. They're afraid to come near the glory of God, even in this second-order kind of way, as it's reflected off of Moses' face. Afraid because unholy people can come, not come near a holy God without being destroyed. And so once Moses told them what God said to them, he did something that was both a mercy and a judgment. Put a veil over his face. That's what Paul talks about there in Corinthians in our passage. Chapter 3, verse 13. Put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze, might not look at, might not continue to examine the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What's that mean? The outcome of what was being brought to an end. The outcome of hearing this old covenant in the presence of God. What's the outcome of having heard the old covenant? It's the glory from the old covenant that you can now see on Moses' face. The glory that Moses had to veil so that the Israelites might not gaze on it. And you realize that that veil then was to protect them. To protect them from the glory that comes from being in the presence of God. And in that moment, you hear the dilemma of the human condition. We were made to live in God's presence. We were made to have our lives connected to his life, to have his life fuel our life. Acts 17, 28 says that it's in him we live and move and have our being. But that only works if you can stand in the presence of a holy God and not be destroyed. Here's the problem. We need God's glory, and it'll kill us. That's the dilemma of the human race. And so God came close to his people to give them what they needed, his glory. But then he had to keep separating his glory from them. Moses veiled his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at the glory that was there. Later in, the, in Exodus, you hear that when Moses went to meet with God, it was in the tent of meeting, that was outside of the camp. Again, separated for the people's sake. Still later, when God's presence would dwell in the tabernacle or the temple, there had to be a curtain separating him and the people so that his holiness did not break out against them and consume them. Eventually, their rebellion would be so bad he'd send them into exile. He would separate them from his presence. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, God has to separate us from his glory. He has to separate us or destroy us. That's our real problem as human beings. And that's the source of all of our other problems. Our refusal to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength produces our refusal to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the human race doesn't believe that. We think that we can live just fine with each other even if we reject God, even if we just ignore him. And so we don't address our disconnect with him as the most essential thing that has to be put right. And the reason that you don't do that is because when you reject God, it changes your mind. It changes how you see the world. 
changes how you see what causes all of our problems, changes how you see what God offers. Corinthians 3.14 says that there's a hardening of our minds that takes place. Check verse 15, that there's a veil that lies over our hearts that keeps us from seeing what God thinks is glorious, keeps us from seeing his solution in the gospel to the problem of our sin. There's another problem related to it, verse, chapter 4, verse 4. We have a spiritual enemy, the God of this world, who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, what does all of that mean? Hardening and veiling and blinding. It's not that people can't think anymore. It's not that their minds don't work at all. It means that sin and the gospel is never what they think about when they look at their own lives or they look at their society. Never occurs to an unbeliever that our horizontal problems are caused by a more important vertical one. And so sin and the gospel are just not functional categories when our world looks at the brokenness of human relationships. It's not that people don't know about Jesus. It's not that people don't understand th that he died on the cross and rose again. It's that people don't think about that at all when they look at the brokenness of society. It's not a functional category. Why is that? Because people do not accept that what they've done against God is so bad that it requires the death of the Messiah to put right. Their minds and hearts are hardened. And so the unbelieving world sees all the problems of humanity, sees how bad it really is, and immediately looks for some other solution, some other way other than sin in the gospel to make things right. Some kind of education, domination, legislation, intervention. Something that has nothing to do with sin in the gospel. A couple weeks ago, I heard from a student at one of our area colleges that there was a wall of prejudice on campus. I had to have that explained to me. It's a wall where people are invited to write down whatever prejudicial things people have said to them, whatever racist, classist, sexist, insulting things they've ever been called. And then after a period of time, people have a go at the wall with sledgehammers, knock it all down, sweep it all away. And I was crushed when I heard this. Because I'm thinking, here are people who are trying really hard to do some good in dealing with the ugliness of living in a broken, fallen world. They see a problem. They see that hateful words are not something that you can just shrug off. They see that ugly, mean, scornful words go to the heart of how we see ourselves, how we understand our own value, as we hear what other people think of us. These people see the problem, but they don't see that their solution has no ability to solve the problem. I mean, it's obvious, right? If I can remember what someone called me, what does that mean? It means that that slur has burrowed itself down inside of me pretty deeply. It's burned, it's wiggled its way down inside. I've taken it to heart. I've taken it in with all the hatred that fueled it, and it's now stuck there. And the only reason that I can write it on the wall is because I've dredged that back up out of me. Because it's inside of me. It's taken residence in here. Which means that even when the wall is gone, it won't be. 
because it's still inside. There is no external cleansing ritual, no cathartic release possible that I can do to purge this thing from inside of me. It came from inside, and destroying a wall will do nothing to remove it. <laughs> the only thing you're inviting me to do with the wall of prejudice is remember it again. Meditate on it. Taste its hatefulness. Recall the emotional pain again. Maybe even start to meditate on violence as a way of dealing with it. I was crushed when I heard this. Because you realize there's real hurt there and nothing to help it. Nothing that will erase the insanity of one image of God hating on someone else made in the exact same image. There's no help here. Because hardened, blinded minds don't make the connection that we end up hating God's images when we start by rejecting the God in whose image they're made. And hardened, blinded minds don't embrace that there's only hope if God does not return our rejection with rejection of his own. Instead, we keep looking for hope somewhere, anywhere, other than in God's solution to our rejection of him, his solution in the gospel. When you're separated from the glory of God, you can't see the true condition of the human race. You can't see what we really need. And if there were no gospel, if we were left to ourselves, this would be really hopeless. <laughs> because how can you see what you're blind to? The hope, point two, is that somehow that separation is removed. Chapter 3, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now pay attention there to the verb tense, because it's a passive verb, not an active one. God doesn't say, okay, when you decide to remove the veil, then you can see. He says the veil is removed. You don't remove it yourself. Someone else does that for you. Who is that? He unpacks that, chapter 4, verse 6. It's the God who said, let light, light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How is it possible to see when the God of this age has blinded you? How can you see when your own heart and mind are hardened, when they are working with the God of this age not to see? It's possible when God decides to make his light shine inside of you so that your heart and your mind can now see what you could not see before. It's the spiritual equivalent of what God did in the physical world. In the beginning of creation, God made light shine. It didn't exist before, but he made it. Brought it out of nothing except out of his own thought and out of his own power to what? To make clear his glory. So that his invisible glory could be clearly seen. In the same way, he makes spiritual light shine in our hearts so that blinded, blind, hardened hearts can also now see his glory. Spiritual blindness goes away by a sovereign act of God. An act that brings you light when you had no light. It's his decision and his decision alone, his initiative that lets you see the glory of God that you couldn't see before. 
That's why chapter 4, verse 1, we do not lose heart. We're optimistic when we look around at the world. We see all the evil that takes place. We're not clueless. Even more, we see the blindness and the proposed solutions that just aren't up to dealing with the evil that we see. We see all of that, and we're not disheartened. We don't lose heart. Why? Because even though we can't do anything about humanity's worst problem, God can. And more than that, God does. If he can make light shine in our hearts, as blind as, and hardened as they were, as uninterested in God as we used to be, if he can do that, he can make light shine in anyone's heart. <laughs> There's no reason to lose hope. And because we don't lose hope, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We renounce every manipulative thing that anyone has ever tried to get people to notice God or to be interested in Him. Every disgraceful, underhanded, cunning way of trying to appeal to people. Every tampering with God's Word to make it seem easier to swallow. We renounce all of that. We renounce saying things like, hey, come to Jesus, and your life will be great. You'll never be lonely. People will like you. You'll never struggle in life. He'll give you good health, a great career, and an amazing spouse. And don't worry about all those hard things in the Bible that seem to upset everybody in society around you. God doesn't really mean those things. You can just ignore them when they don't line up with the way that you want to think. We renounce that kind of approach and anything like it. Why is that? Because that kind of approach denies our fundamental problem that on our own we're blind to the glory of God, blind unless he shines his light into our hearts. The only reason that you would try something underhanded, something cunning, is because you think people are really not blind. The only reason you'd try something like that is because you think that if you could just find the right way to appeal to people, then they would like God. They'll decide, he's not such a bad fellow. They'd want to hear more. Underhanded, manipulative schemes pretend that people are not spiritually blind. It's the spiritual equivalent of trying to talk about colors to a blind person expecting that at any time now they'll start to see them if you just find the right way to present them. We renounce all of that. Instead, we rely on the open statement of the truth. We work as hard as we can to say, here's the gospel as clearly as we can. And then we rely on God to either shine or not shine light into someone's heart. That's why Pastor Nick is with us. That's why he's being ordained. It's so that he will boldly proclaim what is true about God without losing heart, depending on God to do what only God can do. And Nick, hear me. Don't cheat. I know I'm not giving the charge today. Don't cheat. 
don't give in to underhanded methods. Don't rely on bait-and-switch tactics to get our students excited about youth group. Don't say, hey, let's all go roller skating and invite your friends. Do, do, do people go roller skating anymore? When I was growing up, my church used to rent out a roller skating rink for a night, told us to bring all of our friends, you're going to have a lot of fun. And then in the middle of the night, all of the music stopped, and we all had to come into the center of the rink to hear a gospel presentation before we could go back to roller skating again. It always felt dishonest to me because it's not what we said we were there to do. We said we were going to go roller skating. It was underhanded. Don't do that, Nick, unless you tell people that that's what you're going to do. Yes, take the kids roller skating or, or whatever it is that people do now. But don't use that as a pre pretense for sharing the gospel. It's underhanded. Be open about what you're doing so that you commend yourself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Don't pretend that you can make blind eyes see by inviting them to do something that sounds fun to them. Do fun stuff. Take the kids to have fun, but rely on God to shine his light into people's hearts. And for our students who are in youth group or going into youth group, I know I'm not giving you a charge either, but in the same way that I urged Pastor Nick, please listen to me for a moment. Pastor Nick is not trying to make church something that you like. He's not trying to make it something that you hate. But making it something that you like is not his primary goal. Listen to this. The Israelites liked church. They went to synagogue. They loved being in Scripture. And it was completely useless to them when it came to knowing God. Because a veil lay over their hearts. It was a veil that they couldn't remove on their own, regardless of how much they liked church and liked church kind of things. Liking church and having the veil removed are two completely different things. Pastor Nick's calling is to remind you and remind you and remind you of the gospel until it's so central to the way that you think and live that when someone shouts a racist slur at you, runs you off the bike path, you don't fall back on education, domination, legislation, or therapeutic intervention. But you think, Pastor Nick would have said that in this moment, this has something to do with the gospel. This moment has something to do with God loving me when I wanted nothing to do with him so that I could be with him right now. I might not know what that means right now. I, I, I'm really angry and very embarrassed at what this person said to me. But I know it means something. I know that it has everything to do with what I do next. That's Pastor Nick's call in your life. If you like coming to church, that's great, but that is not his highest goal. Instead, his goal is to keep showing you the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ until you see it everywhere in your daily life. His goal is to show you God, to show you Jesus, this Jesus who's willing to be separated from the glory of God for your sake. This Jesus who loved you so much that he was willing to be forsaken on the cross by the Father 
This Jesus who took responsibility for your sin and gave you credit for his obedience in return. This Jesus who took responsibility for every time you've ever rejected God, every time you were not interested in what God had to say, took that responsibility from you, made it his own responsibility, and then stood there before God, before the full force of God's holiness, unveiled, unprotected, so that God's holiness broke out against him until it destroyed every last bit of the unholiness that Jesus carried for you. That's the gospel that Pastor Nick needs to tell you over and over and over again. Jesus loved you so much, he stood unveiled before God's holiness, bearing your unholiness, so that you could now be brought near to an unveiled God and not be afraid of being in his presence. Jesus was forsaken, separated, so that you would never be. So that you can now look and gaze and behold the glory of God and have his holiness embrace you, not destroy you. Will that keep people's ugly words and their prejudice from hurting you? No, it will not. It will keep their hatred from destroying you. Because as deep down as their words and their hatred can go in you, God's loving embrace and his words go deeper. And his embrace and his words mean more to you the longer you experience him. And that gives you the power then to respond to hate with love rather than giving back the hate. That's the hope of the gospel. Not just that you get to be with God, but that the longer you're with him, the more you become like him. The hope is that you get to be like Jesus, who did not insult people when they insulted him, but who loved when he was hated. That's the transformation that chapter 3, verse 18 promises. That we all, not just Paul, but all of God's people, that we all with unveiled face, with nothing getting in the way of seeing God, that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And that as we behold that, we're being transformed into that image, into that same kind of glory. That's why God shines his light into your heart. So that you can now gaze at the glory of the Lord, and as you do, if your mind is not veiled, if you're not perishing because of what Jesus has done in your heart, then when you see him, you're drawn to him, and you want more of him, and you want to become like him. You're transformed into that same image. You go from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another, until you actually get to be with this one who loved you to this extent. Lord Jesus, there is nothing more glorious than you. And we see some of that glory in your gospel. Lord, we see that you have provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Lord, we, our hardened hearts and blinded minds couldn't even see the problem that you provided a solution for. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for wanting us. Lord, let us see you a little bit more clearly. Be drawn to you and become like you. In Jesus' name, amen.